CSN International presents to every man an answer, the live apologetics program that equips you to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. If you have a Bible question or a question on the Christian faith, you can call us at 1-888-827-5276. Again, that's 1-888-ASK-CSN. Let's get things started. Here's today's host, Mike Kessler. Hi, and welcome to Monday's edition of To Every Man and Answer. As we start off this brand new week, we just once again want to encourage you in your faith in Jesus Christ. You know, again, we talk about this often, earnestly contending for the faith. So important in these days, there's so many voices that are not from God's Word saying, it's over here, or believe this here rather than what the Word of God says. You know, Jesus said again, we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we want to look at what does the Bible really have to say about that particular topic that's sometimes in question. And so if you've got a question you'd like to ask us, that number to call again, 8888-ASK-CSN. If you've been reading your Bible, someone's asked you a question, got a question, whatever, that's the number again, 88 88- 88 Ask CSN. Got some lines open. You're sure to get on if you call right now. Joining me today, special guest Scott Parker from Crystal City, Festus, Missouri. Hi and welcome. Hi, Mike. It's great to be with you again, starting off another week. Amen. Looking forward to having a good time with you today and um, answering some questions for everyone. And so we just want to once again encourage you to give us a call. That number again, 8888 Ask CSM. Well, Scott, you know, um, starting off a new week, how was yesterday? Yesterday was great. We had a full house and a wonderful time of worship and teaching, of course, through the book of Revelation. And uh, yesterday we were teaching uh, about that fourth seal where death and Hades comes uh, during the tribulation. And it was a wonderful time and opportunity, Mike, to actually explain to a lot of the new believers in our church what happens when a person when, what happens when a believer dies what happens when an unbeliever dies and then uh it was a great opportunity to preach the gospel uh to those who didn't know the lord you know and to uh let them know that they need to prepare and get ready um you know for the day they die or the tribulation to come because if they don't give their heart to christ and jesus raptures the church they're gonna go through the tribulation and so uh, it was just a great opportunity to really preach the gospel yesterday and, you know, educate people on these matters of eternity and what happens to us. So it was a it was just a great Sunday yesterday as we worshiped together. Wonderful. Well, it's always a blessing, Scott, to have you with us. Thanks for taking Thank time out of your very busy day to do this. Let's go ahead and Pleasure. go to the phones. We have Daylene on the line, Fort Worth, Texas. Hi and welcome. Hi. Uh, yes. I, I, a quick question is like, when a pre- if it's a pregnant woman that is about to give birth or whatever, and the rapture takes place, and she's not a Christian, what happens to that baby? Is the baby? Uh, I believe that baby. Is- uh, no, I believe that baby will be here, uh, as well as I believe uh, children that are not in a where there's at least one Bible believing parent. Now, again, we go back to the Bible. It says that the a uh, believer sanctifies the family, sets it apart. That doesn't mean they're necessarily saved, but I believe in the case of children, I believe the the children of uh, families that are believers uh, will be raptured. However, those that are not, I don't find in the Scripture where they are taken. I do know if we look at Bible consistency in the Scripture, if you go back to 
the flood, that last great judgment that came on the earth, we find that there were babies who died in the great flood. There were toddlers that died. There were completely wicked people, whatever. That doesn't necessarily mean that the babies uh, went to hell. And please, I, I don't believe that's the case. I believe that God's a fair God. He's a just God. And uh, when they come to the ability to know the difference between right and wrong, that's when I believe God uh, will uh, bring about a judgment for them. However, with children, toddlers, even small children, sometimes they just don't get it. And I, I just because uh, a child goes into the tribulation or a baby goes into the tribulation period and, and dies, doesn't mean they'll necessarily go to hell. However, for the those that have rejected Christ or those that are not believers, the Bible tells us they are going to endure the most terrible time in the history of the world. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 24. And people have said, well, there's always been wars and rumors of wars, and there's always been earthquakes and pestilences. That is absolutely true, and I believe it's brought on by the devil. However, when we look at the book of Revelation, we find that these events are not brought on by the devil, but a, a, but a, a God uh, judging a Christ-rejecting world yeah. and dealing with his nation of Israel that last seven-year period of time. So when we really look at what the tribulation is, we find that uh, it forces everybody to make a choice. Now, remember, there's a huge number of people that are under the altar, Revelation chapter 6, that were beheaded for their faith. And um, uh, and so I look at um, the lines being drawn so much better to go in the rapture. Jesus said, um, watch and be ready that you would be counted worthy to escape all these things. Uh, I definitely believe that was not just a spoof warning. I believe Jesus is very serious in telling us that we need to be about our Father's business. And um, Jesus said he's coming as a thief. Now, uh, if you do not understand what thieves do, they come when no one's expecting. Uh, they don't, uh, they, uh, they are um, sneaky. Uh, but Jesus said he's coming as a thief. And you think, well, what's that mean? He's not coming for gold or silver. He's coming for us who love him, his bride. So I hope that, I hope that, uh, answers it on that part. Um, now your, your thoughts, Scott, what, what's your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, Mike, I agree with you 100%. And Daylene, I'm, I'm going to make a statement here, um, that some people at first might, um, not understand, but I'm going to explain it. Years ago, I heard a Bible teacher by the name of Zola Levitt. Zola Levitt was a Jewish believer. He was a Messianic believer who was a great Bible teacher. Uh, died several years ago. Before he died, I had opportunity to be able to see him live in person and speak, and it was wonderful. And I remember him listening to him. Uh, and Mike, I think it was a cassette tape actually in my car years ago, hearing him speak at a prophecy conference talking about the rapture. And he made this statement that I'll never forget. He was talking about the rapture and he said this, the rapture is for saved people, for saved people. And I think that's important to understand that the rapture, Jesus coming to remove his, his, uh, his body, his, his church from the earth. His bride, yeah. Yeah, his bride, uh, before the tribulation period so that we don't endure his wrath. That is for his bride. That is for saved people. It's for those who have put faith in him. 
And I'm going to say something here. It's the raptures for Christians. It's not for babies. Okay. Now, what do I mean by that? I think Mike explained it already really well, but I think if we keep in our mind when it comes to this question, Hey, do babies go in the rapture? I think if we keep in our mind the question rather, who's the rapture for? It's for save people, people who have come to Christ. Now, I, I believe exactly what Mike just shared with you there, which actually the scripture for that comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in verse 14, where it talks about an unbelieving husband sanctified by the wife, the unbelieving wife sanctified by her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. So I believe when it comes to children who are under the age of accountability, they, you know, from, from babies, uh, to kids who cannot understand the gospel yet, they, they, they don't have an understanding that, you know, they're lost and they're sinners and they need a savior and, and can understand why Christ came. Uh, I believe that they are sanctified by, as Paul says there, by the believing spouse that's in the home, at least if there's one of them there. So saying that when the rapture happens, Who's going to go in a rapture? Well, all saved people. And I also believe the babies and children of those, as Mike said earlier, and as it says in 1 Corinthians 7, 14, where there's at least one believing spouse. Other than that, you know, babies and children will be left here because, again, the rapture's not for babies or children. It's for Christians. And so the only children that will go in the rapture is from what I can see in Scripture will be the children of those who are saved, or if the kids, you know, again, have come to that understanding of salvation himself and receive Christ. Therefore, as Mike said earlier, um, you know, mothers who are pregnant, um, if they're Christian mothers, then they go into rapture and the babies go with them. Um, if women are pregnant and they're unsaved, the babies are going to go through the tribulation with them. And I think it's very clear uh, in the scripture. And also, I think it's important to, to notice that in first Corinth or first Thessalonians chapter four, talking about the rapture. And it's kind of interesting because, um, when we talk about the rapture, we have to understand, I think it's important to understand that what the rapture is, is it, it's kind of an addendum onto the resurrection. Uh, the resurrection of the church or believers who have died is synonymous with the rapture. Um, but Jesus, when he comes in what we normally would call the rapture, it's actually the resurrection according to first Corinthians or first Thessalonians chapter four. So what's and first Corinthians 15. But what in first Thessalonians four, it tells us that Jesus comes in the clouds and the dead in Christ, those who, those believers who have died, they rise first. And then that generation of believers who are alive when Jesus resurrects the dead believers, they are caught up together with them. So it's it's like this. It's not that re the resurrection is part of the rapture. The rapture is part of the resurrection. And Paul speaking about the rapture when believers are caught up with the with the resurrected believers, he says this. He says uh in 1 Thessalonians 4:16 um or I'm sorry, in verse 17 he says then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. So Paul is talking about who's going to go into rapture there when he says, and we who are alive. Well, who's the we? He's speaking to the Thessalonians. He's speaking to Christians, to a church. So I, I think, you know, this question can be answered if we just keep in our mind that the, the rapture is not for children. It's for Christians. But again, as it says in First Corinthians 7, 14, uh, the children and babies of that are in a home 
where there's at least one believing spouse, I do believe they will go in the rapture, but all else are going to go through the tribulation. I think Mike gave a great answer for that. Mike? So I hope that helps. And uh, even even we find it in the Old Testament, Second Samuel 12, 13. Uh, 1223, where David's little baby died, uh, mm-hmm. Bathsheba's first son, and uh, he was moping around, and finally the baby died. He came down, took a bath, shaved, <laughs> went to cleaned himself up, and they said, we don't get it. When your son was was sick, you wouldn't do anything. Now that he's died, you've cleaned yourself up. What's the deal? And basically what he said was, um, well, I'll just read it to you what it says, so you know. He says, but now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. So very clearly, David understood that that uh, a child of a of a family that believed in God uh, would would go uh, to heaven, and babies would go to heaven. So hope that helps, Daylene. It does. It does. Thank you very much. Stay online if you like. Send you out a couple of books, a couple of DVDs, and the movie Jesus. I think you'll really enjoy that. Let's go to Dorman, Lancaster, California. Hi, welcome. Hello. First off, I would like to say thank you very much for your radio station and for repairing it, because it was down for over five days out here, and we were lost trying to find it. But besides that, my wife was at a Bible study last week, and a question came up of the Jews that only believe in the Torah, do they still sacrifice? Uh, no, generally not. And the reason why is because there is no place for that. Uh, right now, how a, a person that is in the Jewish faith justifies themselves is by their good works. Now, we know Jesus and the Bible talks about our works will never get us into heaven. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Um, but they believe that—and this is part of what um, uh, uh, Festival of Trumpets is about, uh, that, that usually is in September, that you think about your life as you prepare to go into Yom Kippur or the New Year uh, about a week later. And do my good works outweigh my bad works? Have I ripped anybody off? Do I need to go make things right? All these different things. It's a time of self-reflection. And then as you prepare to go into the new year, you don't take your baggage from the last year into the new year. That's their idea. The problem is, though, the sins remain. And this is one of the great problems that they have and why the Jewish people today are really anxious to rebuild their temple there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, Israel. There's a place called uh, the uh, the Temple Institute where they're getting everything ready. Now, if you remember, as you go back, when Solomon's Temple was built, everything was prefabbed someplace else. There was no sound of hewning of stones on the Temple Mount. It was just to be placed there, in place, and the Temple was built. They are pre building everything right now. In the Temple Institute, they have all the lavaliers, all the epods, all those things that uh, the priests will wear. They're getting ready. And what is stopping them is the Dome of the Rock Mosque, which that area is controlled by uh, the Arabs. And so uh, the Bible tells us the tri- tribulation begins with a treaty. 
I personally believe that treaty uh, will be instituted by the Antichrist because one of the 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 identifiers uh, uh, for him is he's a fake man of peace. Now, imagine you have a guy come on the world scene. He can get the Arabs and the Jews to all uh, work together. Now, remembering that they have probably suffered a very humiliating defeat in the Ezekiel 38-39 war, where five-sixths of the invading army has been wiped out. The cachet of weapons is so great um, with uh, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Russia, Ethiopia, Libya, the Balkan states around the Balkan Sea, uh, Turkey, all the and Russia, all those countries come against Israel in the last days to take a spoil. God fights for Israel, and they're wiped out. There's such a cachet of resources, weapons, oil, all these things to run their tanks. They're burning their weapons for seven years. Now, when you stop to think about that, they're not going to be burning those into the millennial reign of Christ. And the tribulation period as well is only seven years long. So I believe that the Ezekiel 38-39 war is before the tribulation period. But the man of peace makes a deal and tells Israel they can rebuild their temple. And once again, I believe they'll try to institute the blood sacrifices. But today, no, they're justified by their works in their minds, but not according to Scripture. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Your thoughts, Scott? Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the big problems when it comes to um, the Jewish people dealing with their sin, because the Bible makes it very clear that God has given blood upon the altar. He says this in Leviticus 17, blood upon the altar as an atonement for sin. And so what's interesting is without sacrifices, if if you're going to follow the Torah, if you're going to follow the Old Covenant, without the sacrifices, there is no blood for the atonement. So they have Jewish people have no way to remove their sin. They have substituted that uh, with good works. That's literally what they've done. Um, but because of the destruction of the temple, there is no temple, which means there is no altar. And if there's no altar, and of course now there's no priesthood right now, right? Uh, since 70 AD, uh, since the temple was destroyed. And without those things, there is no sacrifice. And so according, you know, according to the Old Testament, according to the law. And so for that, what the Jewish people do is they try to make up for that in their good works. Um, you know, when it comes to, as Mike was talking about the day of atonement and such, um, this is why this is part of what Jewish people do during the day of atonement is to try to do good deeds during that season of time to make up for <laughs> their sins and the way they've lived during the rest of the year. Um, so anyhow, it is interesting. I think it's interesting though, that the, the Samaritans, um, you know, which were considered to be, you know, um, I mean, they're not pure Jewish people, but considered to be, you know, uh, the half-breed Jew, Jews. Uh, it's interesting that in Samaria, even to this day, they still do offer um, offerings of lambs on Passover. Um, so that's an interesting thing uh, because the Samaritans, uh, they only they only hold to the Torah as being inspired by God. They don't, they don't hold to the, to the prophetic books 
the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament, they only hold to that one part, which is the Torah. But it is interesting that the Samaritans in Israel, even to this day right now, uh, on uh, Passover, they actually do offer up uh, Passover lambs for Passover. But, you know, when it comes to the Jewish people, um, they have no they have no temple, which means they have no altar. And because of that, they have no sacrifice. And without the sacrifice of the blood there, God says, you know, there is no atonement for their sins. But God has provided, hasn't he, Mike? Mike, God has provided that sacrifice. He has provided his lamb to die one time for all time for the sins of all people. And, of course, we know that was Jesus Christ. And the book of Hebrews goes through great pains to make that very clear to us, that there's no need anymore for animal sacrifices. And that's why in 70 AD, God got rid of the temple to show the Jewish people that the Messiah who came 40 years prior to that was their Messiah, that, that Jesus Christ, who came 40 years prior to that, was their Messiah. Uh, in fact, in the Talmud, it actually says this. This is Jewish writings. It actually says in the Talmud that approximately 40 years prior to the destruction of the temple, would put you right at the time of Jesus, that God no longer accepted the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement from the Jews. And why did he do it? Because Jesus came as God's lamb and put and, and made the final and the ultimate blood sacrifice by giving his life for us. And the only way to have our sins forgiven is not through doing good works and not trying to make it up in any other way. It's by total faith in what Jesus has done for us. Mike? Corbin, I hope that helps. Oh, it did. You guys gave me a lot of information. Thank you very much and keep the Lord in your heart. Well, God bless you. Stay online if you like. And yeah, the book, DVDs, and the movie Jesus, great for evangelism. Let's go to Brian, Santa Barbara, California. Hi, welcome. Hey, guys. Uh, love the show. It's fantastic. I listen as much as I can. Um, God is good. So, uh, a woman called in earlier, and she had a great question about the uh, babies in the womb at the rapture. And I was just yes. looking for a point of clarification. Uh, maybe this is me being a little hard-headed, but my understanding w- was, or what I thought the way I understood it was that there's a group of people that would sort of fall into a category that I would call like the innocence. And so that would be like children below a certain age, of course, babies in the womb, maybe like people from tribes in, in real remote parts of the world that haven't been exposed to to the gospel and so on. I was under the impression that those folks would also be included uh, in the rapture, uh, being raptured up. A- am I way off on that? Am I misunderstanding? I, I agree with uh, what, what, Scott, you said earlier, Zola Levitt said, the mm-hmm. rapture is for believers. It is for the bride of Christ. Just because a human being is on this earth in an innocent way doesn't make them the bride of Christ. And we have to understand that uh, just as it was in the days of Noah, social the coming of the Son of Man be. That's exactly what Jesus said concerning, I believe, the rapture of the church. Now, when Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 24, um, they were eating, drinking, marrying, given in marriage. Um, I believe that is speaking of the time of the rapture, not the time of the second coming. And here's why. At the time of the rapture, we find people eating, drinking, marrying. Life is normal right now. And at the time of the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, given in marriage. They didn't, tomorrow, uh, no, who cares? But the Bible says that there was an impending judgment 
that was going to happen in just a few days when that ark door slammed, when it began to rain. And we find that right now, the ark door is getting ready to close. The rapture is going to come, and those that are left behind. And who died in the flood? There was babies. There were children in the mother's womb. There were toddlers. There were innocents, you might say, out there. But they all died in the flood. Now, again, that doesn't mean they go to hell. I believe that, again, because of the the um, the wisdom of God and God's mercy, they don't. However, they're not protected by God as they would be where there's a believing uh, uh, spouse in the home. And you cited that out of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Scott. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, I, I think it's very clear. The rapture is for Christians. And, um, you know, again, as we've said, 1 Corinthians seven fourteen, if there's a believing spouse in the home, then those children are sanctified. You know, if they're not of the age of accountability where they can understand, you know, the gospel. Um, so, I yeah, I think we uh, hit that pretty hard in the first question. So, and I think, Mike, uh, you, you explained it again. So, Brian, I hope that helps. Thanks very much, guys. I really appreciate it. Keep up the good work and God bless. Well, God bless you, Brian. Again, when when we come to places like that, we have to look how God dealt in judgments in time past. We remember that God sent the children of Israel into the camps of the Canaanites when they went into the promised land. We remember the command uh, when they came up to to uh, the different towns, kill everything in the town. Don't leave anything alive. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean the babies in these Canaanite towns went to hell. It did mean that the that the, the wicked parents did, but the children, I believe, but it didn't keep them from being killed. The flood didn't keep people from being killed. And really quickly, I want to say this. I've had people say to me, well, if there's a God then why does he allow the wickedness in the world to go on? I know we've all heard that. Where's God? when? Well, when God does bring a judgment, like the flood, well, now God's a murderer. You, you see, they, they want it both ways, and you can't have it. You, you, God is a righteous God. People live in the mercy of God today. When they all, we all should be fried, but God in his mercy uh, uh, um, reaches his hand out to us and, and keeps us in his love. Now, again, why does he do that? We must never interpret the mercy of God for God not caring or slackness. Because there is a point where we know that God will bring a judgment. Ryan, hope that helps. Stay in line. Send you out a couple of books, a couple of DVDs. When we come back on the other side of the break, we'll have more to every man and answer. So don't go away. We'll be right back. You know, it's true. Difficult times have a way of focusing us. We have to think about what matters most when it comes to our spending, our health care. No doubt. This is why so many people are joining MediShare right now. MediShare is a trusted way to save up to 50% on your monthly health care costs. More than 400,000 people have already made the switch. It's pretty obvious why, too, especially now during this challenging season with healthcare costs and out-of-pocket expenses going up. MediShare can save you a lot of money. The typical family saves $500 a month. And MediShare is a Christian healthcare sharing ministry that's worked beautifully for 29 years. There are different options to choose from to fit your budget. I'll give you the number here in a second. And if you call, you can get a price within two minutes, maybe now. 
is the perfect time to make the switch and start saving. Here you go. Call 855-91-BIBLE. That's 855-91-BIBLE. 855-91-BIBLE. Does the Bible seem too big, complicated, and overwhelming? There's a free Bible resource that's been around for more than 25 years and is used and trusted by millions worldwide. The Enduring Word Bible Commentary by David Guzik is a clear and simple way for everyday Christians and even seasoned Bible teachers to study God's Word. David's commentary not only breaks down the entire Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse, it also provides helpful quotes from well-known Bible expositors throughout history. The commentary has also been translated into many languages, including Spanish, Arabic, Chinese, and more. Find the Enduring Word Bible Commentary as well as a free downloadable e-book called The King's Kingdom, a deeper look at the Sermon on the Mount by David Guzik at EnduringWord.com forward slash CSN. That's EnduringWord.com forward slash CSN. Part two of To Every Man Answer here on this Monday with Scott Parker. I'm your host, Mike Kessler. And again, we just want to once again encourage you, know your Bible. You know, there's so many different voices out there, so many presentations of what the Bible says, but in fact, it really doesn't. And so if you know your Bible, it's going to help you. I would urge everyone to read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and look and see who Jesus is. Not the Jesus we see in TV series, not the Jesus that we see in in the cults, but who Jesus really is. Pick yourself up a New American Standard or a, a, a you know, King James Bible, New King James, and just read who Jesus is. You're going to get a lot different picture than what you see sometimes in these different programs where Jesus is unsure of himself and he's kind of a bumbling doofus. And oh, man, I'll tell you. No, you better know who Jesus is. And I want to just encourage you, read your Bible. You'll be glad you did. Let's go back to the phones. 8888 ASCIA sends the number call. If you want to be part of the program today, we have Kim on the line, Eagle, Idaho, up by Boise. Hi and welcome. Hi. I have a question on um, Genesis twenty-seven twenty-nine. So my understanding is that Isaac and Rebecca only had Jacob and, and Esau as their sons, but the blessing that Isaac is um, saying um, when it says, like, be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you is in the plural. And I'm just, you know, curious on why that might be. Okay, good question, Kim. Your thoughts, Scott? Yeah, that is a very good question. And I think that the answer could be found actually in the prophecy that the Lord had given to Rebecca concerning the children who were in her womb whenever Isaac and I'm sorry, whenever Jacob and Esau were in her womb, the Lord said two nations and it's plural there are in your womb. Two peoples again, plural shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. And so what I think is interesting is though in the biblical account, it only gives us the two children of Isaac and Rebecca, 
which would be Jacob and Esau, where Esau was born first, then Jacob. But Jacob was given uh, the firstborn blessing uh, according to what God had prophesied here. And uh, it's interesting because Jacob became uh, the patriarch, you know, one of the patriarchs and the forefathers of the Israelites, that nation. And, of course, Esau became then the patriarch of the Edomites. And so when you're looking at that where they're in Genesis 27, when it's speaking of the sons in plural, uh, I, I believe what it's referring to is not only just Jacob and Esau, but also the people who will come from them. Um, because when you read the Bible many times, you, you see uh, that it speaks of these large families like this and their children as all brothers and all sons and, and such like that. Um, you know, uh, Jacob, whenever he was blessing um, his son Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, he actually said, let, let these sons become mine. Let them be like my sons. So we do in the Hebrew culture, uh, which, you know, is, is the environment of the Old Testament. You do have this language being spoken of sons and brothers going a little farther than just the immediate sons, uh, you know, of somebody like, uh, Isaac and Rebecca. So, Mike? Yeah. Speaking of their descendants, that, um, mm-hmm. the, the, uh, children that will come from you, your grandsons, granddaughters, and things like this. Kim, I hope that helps. Yep. It sure does. Stay online. We'll send you out a couple of books, a couple of DVDs. I think you'll enjoy. Again, 8888. Ask CSN's number to call if you want to be part of the program today. Let's go to David, Wichita Falls. Hi, welcome. Yeah, Mike. Hi. Hello. Yeah, yes, Mike. we're here. How may we help? I have something I need to understand about speaking in tongues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm in a Pentecostal church. I'm kind of confused. Can you help me? Well, I, I don't know which particular type of Pentecostal church you're in. I've seen a lot of, I was raised in church, and I've seen a lot of abuses in the name of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with. Uh, the Bible says that uh, tongues is simply a prayer language that's given to build up the person who is praying in that language. We find in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he that prays in an unknown tongue, let him pray that he may interpret, so the others are edified or built up as well. So whatever the Holy Spirit has laid on a person's heart, when you run out of words in your own language, God just supernaturally gives you a a gift to be able to continue to pray what's on the heart of God. Now, we've talked about this before, that when we go and we pray, I believe it's really important. Not only do we tell God what's on our heart, but that we're silent before him and God lays on our heart what's on his heart. In other words, prayer is not just one way. It's it's two ways. It's duplex. It's uh, we pray to God and then God reveals his will to us. And I believe that's really important. Now, Paul even talks about praying in groanings. I have had people explain to me their home situation or something going on in their family, and I just go, "Oh man, you know it's it's just it's 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 just beyond words." But the Bible says that tongues are not a sign for believers, but non-believers, just as it was in Acts chapter two. How is it that we hear all of these people speaking in these tongues in our hometown dialect? 
Literally, that's what the word in the Greek means in these dialects. But it was really with the hometown dialect, if you will. So in other words, it's not just English. It would be like if somebody was from the south part of the United States, you'd hear that drawl that they have or or something else. It was a sign for the non-believers. Now, we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in a church service, two or at the most pray in tongues and let one explain fully what's happening, not translate to another language, which many Pentecostal churches do in error. Because it's very clear, if you look at the original language, the word two or the most three, and let one interpret, the word interpret there does not mean to change to another language. It means to explain fully. And that's exactly what Peter did when they said, oh, these men are all drunk with wine back in Acts chapter 2. That's why they're babbling. Well, they weren't. It says, how is it that we hear all these men speaking in our hometown dialects? And he lists the different languages that they heard being spoken there. Peter stands up and says, they're not drunk with wine as you think, but they're filled with the Spirit. He didn't try to change the language of what they were saying. He was explaining that they're not drunk with wine as you think, but they're filled with the Spirit. Now, I've been in church services where at the end of a service or whatever, somebody will stand up with tongues. Well, so far, we're okay. We're following scriptural protocol. But then it says, he that stands and, and prays in an unknown tongue, let him pray that he may interpret what he just said, so the others will be edified. And if there is no interpretation, let him be quiet. Let the guy, two or at the most three, explain fully what they're doing. Oh, they're not drunk. They're not just babbling. This is the gift of tongues. That's okay. But I've seen it where a person will stand up with a message in tongue, and then somebody across the room will stand up with a really long interpretation of what was very short in the message in tongues, if you will. I believe that person, I'm not going to discount it and say, well, they don't know what they're talking about, because it may very well be that you heard somebody pray in tongues, and then somebody just had a word of knowledge or um, to prophesy uh, in, in Paul says, I wish that you would prophesy, that way the whole body's built up. But the two are not related. And yet, oftentimes in the Pentecostal church, you'll find them related one person will pray in tongues, and then there'll be a interpretation. But the Bible says there has to be someone explains fully what they're doing, and if somebody prays in an unknown tongue, let the person who prayed in the unknown tongue pray that he may explain fully what he just said. And so I believe that's the biblical protocol. I've been into Pentecostal churches where the whole congregation breaks out in tongue, forbidden by scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you do this, people that are unlearned in the, that are visiting will walk out and say, you're mad, you're crazy. And that's exactly what they do. The Bible clearly says, don't do it. Yet people don't care, I guess, about what the Bible says, because 1 Corinthians 14 is extremely clear on that particular topic, yet so many Pentecostal churches violate what the book says. Now, not all, though, and there's some Pentecostal churches that are very clear. You'll have maybe a person stand up in tongues, maybe somebody else will stand up in tongues, and the guy in front will say, this is just the gift of tongues. 
And sometimes you'll find that there may be somebody in the congregation that speaks that language, just as it was in Acts chapter 2, that understands what they're saying, knowing that it's a supernatural occurrence. There's no way this person could have the accent of my hometown and praise God in what they're doing. And that's the other thing. I find the problem with uh, praying in tongues and the interpretations oftentimes in the Pentecostal churches, it says they that pray in an unknown tongue, as we find in Acts chapter 2, were worshiping and glorifying God. But you'll find somebody stands up and they'll have a message in tongue and then somebody will jump up across the room. Oh, my people, thus saith the Lord. That is not, according to Scripture, what tongues are for. And it says that those that pray in an unknown tongue worship and glorify God. Now, there may be information in there, but the thing is, it's not a general message to the people that come through the way of tongues. And I believe, again, simple reading the book of First Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 14 will give a person understanding. And every time you find the word interpret or interpretation in Acts 14, look it up in a strong concordance, and you'll come away with a completely different understanding than oftentimes what's portrayed in sometimes the Pentecostal churches. I consider myself, Scott does too, Pentecostal. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit. But as Paul says, to be done decently and in order. Your thoughts, Scott? Yeah, Mike, I thought that was great. And I think it's important. I really think it's important for people to understand that difference between tongues and prophecy. Um, you know, when when someone is speaking forth uh, by the Spirit, the Word of God, that's prophecy. That's not interpretation of tongues. And when it comes to tongues, I think Mike made a great point in saying when a person's speaking in tongues, what they're doing is they're worshiping God. Uh, we see this in Acts chapter 2 uh, in verse 11. It actually talks about what the people were hearing, and it says that they heard them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. The believers who were filled with the Spirit on, on the day of Pentecost, they weren't speaking a message from God to the people in an unknown tongue, and then it had to be interpreted. That's not what was going on. They were worshiping God through that tongue and what through those tongues. And what amazing is it tells us that they were speaking about the wonderful works of God. They were glorifying God. First uh, Corinthians chapter 14 in verse 14, uh, Paul actually says that when we pray in a tongue, that what we're is what's happening is our spirit is praying and we're worshiping God from our spirit. Um, it's also interesting there in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, in verse 16, I think it's interesting. Paul uses two words here that helps us understand, uh, what tongues is, that it's, it's not a message from God to man, but rather it says, Paul says, if you bless with the spirit. In other words, who are we blessing? When we speak in tongues, who are we blessing? We're blessing the Lord. We're worshiping, glorifying him again with our spirit. And then it says, if you don't have an interpreter and you speak in tongues in church, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at the giving of your thanks? In that verse, Paul says that the speaking in tongues is number one, blessing God, and number two, giving thanks to God. So I think when we understand when it comes to tongues, what tongues are, it can really help us understand, um, like when we hear an interpretation, we can, we can, you know, we can really discern the interpretation by understanding really what tongues is. 
um, in first Corinthians chapter, uh, uh, I'm sorry, first Corinthians 14 in verse three. Um, the, the it, I'm sorry, in verse two, Paul actually says he who speaks in an unknown tongue does not speak to men, but to God. So anytime someone is speaking through the, you know, the Holy Spirit is given that gift of tongues and they're speaking from their spirit in tongues. What's happening there? That's a spiritual thing. That's a, that's a supernatural spiritual thing. But what's happening is they're not speaking to men. In, in verse two of chapter 14, Paul makes that very clear. They're speaking to God. So therefore, if there's an interpretation from those tongues, then the interpretation also should be addressing God in a way of worshiping and glorifying him, not a message to man. And I think if we understand just that simple principle, um, it really helps us understand what tongues is. Now, you know, the whole purpose of tongues you find in verse 4 of Second Corinthians 4, where Paul says, he who speaks in, 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 an un, in, an un, in a tongue, I'm sorry, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. So, you know, I, I've always said it this way, Mike. I've always said out of all the spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit, I've always said that speaking in tongues is kind of the most selfish <laughs> because when you speak in tongues, you're edifying yourself. And if a person has that gift from the Holy Spirit, it's best used in private where you can edify yourself and and speak to the Lord in that tongue. But if it is to be used in public, Paul makes it very clear, First Corinthians 14, there has to be an interpretation so people can understand what's going on. And if not, then you know what? It's like Paul said in, in chapter 13. It's just a banging gong and a clanging symbol. It doesn't mean anything. So I think if we just follow exactly what the Bible says and be, and, and be careful not to follow our denomination or what people tell us, Concerning the gift of tongues, if we just follow what the Bible says, I think uh, it straightens us out pretty good and gives us discernment when we're in those environments where that is going on. So, Pastor Mike? Yeah, and they'll say, oh, well, the gift of tongues were given so the disciples could go out in foreign lands and preach sermons. You will never find <laughs> one instant instance of that in the entire Scripture. That is not what it is. That's not what it's for. And uh, people that don't understand uh, the working of the Holy Spirit, they will say irrational things like that. The other thing about language and things like that, people in those days were very bilingual, trilingual, all kinds of stuff above the cross of Jesus in three languages. Here is the king of the Jews. Um, so a lot of people spoke a lot of languages that were there. Again, it's a sign for the non-believer who hears it going, wow, how is that happening that God would actually be worshipped in my hometown language? David, I hope that helps. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. Have a blessed day. <laughs> you too. And again, I tell everybody, go get a strong concordance. First Corinthians chapter 14, every time you find the word interpret or interpretation, look it up. It is not the same word. It sometimes it means to translate to a different language, such as he that prays in an unknown tongue, let him pray that he would interpret. That means to translate to another language. When you find it says two or at the most three, let one interpret not what they're saying, but explain what they're doing. Very, very clear in the Greek. Hope that helps. David, stay in line. We'll send you out books, DVDs. Let's go to Christy in California. I welcome. Yes, hello. Hi. Hi, pastors. I always have a question on regards of um, I'm looking for a, a local church in my community, and um, I'm having difficulty finding a suppository Bible teaching church. 
there is several ones that come up in the web. My question is, is because every time they come up to the mission statement of what they do, it always goes into different kind of ways. Like it's, it's about not, it, it doesn't have any relation to what the standards are as far as being a disciple of Jesus. So I'm a little confused and I'm just curious, what can I look for when I actually come across a church that it says that it's a suppository Bible teaching and what is the high keys that I can look into and say, oh yeah, this is what it is. This is the right. Well, I'll send you, I'll send you a little book called time to grow. Cause that, that's really that book. I wrote it for new believers, but really it's our statement of faith. And in, if you're going to a church that doesn't really believe that you need to be born again, doesn't believe the Lord's coming back, uh, very selective in what they study. I've talked to people in churches. They don't even believe in the rapture. Um, how tragic. Uh, they don't even teach revelation. Well, it's too hard to understand. Well, then you just left out a big percentage of the Bible. And if we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, where does a minister get off saying, well, I don't teach revelation or I don't teach this or that you're depriving the people of God's word. So I believe it's very important. Scott quickly, your thoughts. Yeah, I, I think it's important to, uh, to when you're looking for a church and you're looking at these websites, you want to look for churches that don't hide their beliefs in their statement of faith. Like when you were looking, looking at statements of faith, if these statements of faith aren't clear on Orthodox Christianity about what they believe about the Bible, what do they believe about salvation? What do they believe, as Mike said, about the, about the coming of the Lord and end times and what, what do they believe? You know, we have on our statement of faith even what we believe about marriage now because it's it's a necessity for people to understand where we stand on the issue of marriage and and all that sort of thing. So I think what you're what what you're looking for if you're looking at websites and things, um, you know, you're looking for churches that teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, which are called expository teaching. You're looking for a church that's, that te- that teaches an expository method, which is verse by verse, and then you're looking for churches that, again, on their website are making it very clear what they believe about the scriptures, about God, about Jesus, about salvation. And um, if, if, if their statements of faith are, are cloudy, I would stay away from them because actually that's the old bait and switch. <laughs> so, Mike? Yeah, once we reel you in, then we'll really reveal who we are. Tell you what we believe, yeah. Stuff, <laughs> so stay on line, Christy. We'll send you out books and DVDs. I think that'll help you. And, of course, you have a have a chance to talk there to the person you're talking to, and they might be able to direct you as well, okay? Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. Christy, God bless you. And like I say, you'll like the books and DVDs. Let's go to Robert in Sherman Oaks, California. I welcome. Yeah, this is Robert. Yeah, Robert, how can we help? Yeah, I just wanted to get your opinion about the new release movement, about the founding of Calvary Chapel. What movie is this? Uh, I believe it's called The Jesus Movement. I'm not 100% sure. On yeah, it's the, the, Jesus the Jesus Revolution. Revolution. Yeah. Jesus Revolution, uh-huh. What about it? How can we help? And Robert, I, I don't hear you. Yes, I just wanted to get your opinion about the movie. It's a new release movie about the founding of Calvary Chapel. Well, it's not really. It's really the story of Greg Laurie, how he got saved. And um, 
And again, I tell people that's from his perception. I'm not Greg Glory. I didn't live his life. I didn't cruise around in, in a van where everybody's getting loaded in stone and almost killing everybody as it shows in the movie. I, I don't know. But that's Greg's perception of how that started. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot more details that could be. As a matter of fact, we know that Chuck Smith is in the movie has, of course, Cheryl, who's in the movie. Uh, but there's, there's, there's also, um, uh, excuse me, Jan is in the movie, but there's Cheryl and there's Jeff Smith and Chuck Smith Jr. Uh, they're all in the movie as well. Uh, excuse me. They're all existing, but they're not in the movie. And so what I'm saying is that that's their perception of it. It is not claiming to be the history of Calvary Chapel in any way. What it's simply showing is how Greg's ministry started. And I think it's really the idea, the target is to encourage people that, hey, if God can use somebody like Greg, he can use somebody like me. And in the midst of all of the crazy stuff that goes on in life, weird life's weird twists and turns and all those kinds of things, and sometimes even being disillusioned with Christianity, which it actually shows Greg in the movie becoming disillusioned, but how God rescued him from that. I, I believe that really it shows us that if we persevere, if we if we see it through, God will continue to use us. And if God uses Greg, he'll use anybody. And that's what the Bible says. God's got a different purpose for every person that lived on this earth. And I, I really believe that if we'll spend some time to seek and know him, that we'll uh, understand that. Your th- your thoughts on that, Scott? Yeah, I agree. And I think it's important for people to understand that, that that movie is not an expose or documentary on the, on the Calvary Chapel movement or the history of it or how it started. As Mike said, it's a, it's a history and uh, about Greg Laurie and his life. And, um, you know, I've seen the movie. I thought the movie was good. Um, one, th- you know, w- one thing the movie does leave out is how, uh, Pastor Chuck and Kay went to the beach and prayed for the hippies, uh, before the Lord did this great movement among them there. But again, it's the reason that's not in the movie is because that's not the whole focus of it. But I-, I think it's a very encouraging movie, as Mike said, just to show people that, hey, if God can use these hippies in, in great ways to share the gospel and use him for, use them for the kingdom, he can use us. So Mike. Okay. I'll, I'll tell everybody a little secret when you watch this. So they, they got the, them landing on the moon and, and, uh, they give Greg Laurie an old Corvair. The hippie house gave him a Corvair to drive around. But what's funny, uh, you know, they landed on the moon in 1969 and they give him like a 60 Corvair. But what's funny is as they pan through the parking lot, you see a 77 Chevy Chevette. I guess that was a little time travel car. <laughs> when you watch the movie, it's fun. But anyway, we're out of time. Robert, stay in line if you like. Send you a couple of books, a couple of DVDs. Scott, thank you so much for being on the program today. And look Thanks forward for to it. And for Kevin and Bob and uh, everybody, call us, put, put you on first thing tomorrow. To Until then, God bless you. this ministry or to receive a copy of today's program, please call 1-800-357-4226 or write us to Every Man and Answer, P.O. Box 391, Twin Falls, Idaho, 83303. That toll-free number is 1-800-357-4226. Subscribe to the free podcast on iTunes by searching for To Every Man and Answer in the iTunes store or visit us online at csnradio.com slash T-E-M-A. To Every Man and Answer is a production of CSN International, the Christian Satellite Network. 
The opinions expressed by our guests may or may not be those of CSN International or of this station. 